This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Albert Einstein once wrote, The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. So the unknown, the mysterious, is where art and science meet. What do art and science have in common there? This hour, we're going to explore that mysterious connection between art and science and how that relates to human origins. Our guests include a novelist, a filmmaker, and a physicist, and we'll be talking with them this hour about their work. What does physics have to do with fiction or film? What does art have to tell us about science, human origins, and destiny. If you'd like to ask a question, our number is 1-800-989-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry at S-C-I-F-R-I or go to our Facebook page, Facebook slash SciFry, and get in on the discussions and questions there. Let me introduce my guests. Werner Herzog is a film director, producer, and screenwriter. He is the director of over 50 films, including Grizzly Man and The White Diamond, just to name a couple. His film Encounters at the End of the World, about scientists in Antarctica, was nominated for an Oscar. His latest film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, premieres this month. Uh, thank you for for joining us today, Werner. Uh, thank you for having us. You're welcome. Corman McCarthy is a novelist and playwright. His books include The Road, No Country for Old Men, All the Pretty Horses, Blood Meridian, and many, many more. And several of those books have been adapted into award-winning films. McCarthy is also the recipient of the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Thank you for being with us today. Pleased to be here. You're welcome. Lawrence Krauss is a physicist and foundation professor and director of the Arizona State University Origin Project. The ASU Science and Culture Festival is taking place this weekend in Tempe, exploring the same theme of science, the arts and culture. His latest book is Quantum Man, Richard Feynman's Life in Science. And they're all joining us from KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona. Lawrence, welcome back to Science Friday. It's always good to be back, Ira. And you were one of the catalysts for for this meeting, uh, for the for the uh, meeting that's going on in Arizona. Where do you see the connection between science and, and art? Well, to me, it's kind of obvious. They ask the same questions. So, science, science addresses really what it does at its best is force us to reassess our place in the cosmos, where we come from, who are we, where are we going. And those are the very same questions that, that you get in art, literature, music. Every time you, you read a wonderful book or see a wonderful film, you come out of it with a different perspective of yourself. And, and um, too often, it seems to me, we forget that cultural aspect of science, and that's the reason we're celebrating it here. And, and, and they come together in some sense in the notion of origins. Origins really is one place where it seems to me those two worlds connect the, the closest, because we all wonder about our origins in different ways. And and uh, it's the forefront of science in almost every field, and and yet, of course, it's really what we're asking ourselves when we when mm. we when we think about literature and art. Werner, you always seem to have that kind of connection in the book, in the in the films that you make. Certainly, you 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 get into the science, and then you get into a a larger question about humanity in there, don't you? Well, <clears throat> in some of the films, yes, but it doesn't really apply to everything I do. Uh, when you look at the feature films, of course, they are of different nature, but a good example of what you are uh, alluding to is uh, the film I made in Antarctica, Encounters at the End of the World, and, of course, the uh, most recent film uh, in the cave in southern France where you really can observe the origins of the modern human soul, so to speak. 
uh, art, figurative representation, apparently first traces of religion. Uh, there was music nearby, well, 400 kilometers away. Um, ivory flutes were found um, and just uh, phenomenal things that uh, did not occur to Neanderthal men who roamed the landscape at the same time uh, 32,000 years ago. So there are profound questions and, of course, profound mysteries uh, remaining. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, most people may not know this, but I, I understand you are very interested in science also. Tell us about your relationship, for example, with the, the Santa Fe Institute. Well, I met Murray Gilman about 25 years ago, and I'd been interested in science at that time, uh, particularly physics. And uh, after meeting Murray and a number of other uh, physicists, uh, I became more interested. And uh, I was invited to come to the Santa Fe Institute, where I've been for uh, oh, I don't know, about a dozen years. But my connection with them was even before that, because I lived in El Paso and my brother and I used to come to various meetings and presentations at the institute, and uh, I, I think it I think it kind of helps you to stay honest. You're talking about things which are factual and things about which there is agreement. Um, it's kind of hard to get agreement about uh, the arts uh, at the at the uh, uh, some some of the some of the awards. Uh, programs really have a hard time f getting any sort of consensus about who should get it uh, these awards in literature or the visual arts there's not uh, it's it's not easy to do but if you're talking about a a theory in physics uh guess what it's either true or it's not and you will go to an experiment and to experimental people and uh tell them what you're looking for, and if they find it, then it's there, and if they don't, it's not. And that's, uh, I kind of like that. Lawrence, Lawrence, you have a reaction to that? Well, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's fascinating to hear that, because I think it's really important. Uh, you, one of the, you know, we, I mean, all of what we're talking about is, is, is human imagination in a way, and, and in fact, to bring Feynman up, I guess, he, he said science is imagination in a straitjacket. And I think, um, and we, we, we have to recognize that we, we, we as humans, I guess, want to and love to imagine not only the world the way it is, but the world as it might be. And many of us want the world to hope that there are worlds that are better. And, and that's great. I think that's really important. But uh, there are two aspects to it. One is we have to accept that the world we live in is what it is. And, and if people would just recognize that the world is the way it is, whether we like it or not, I think it would change a lot of the way people behave. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think um, we... we we should we we need to recognize also that sometimes the actual world, universe is, is is more fascinating than even our imagination, and it can spur it can spur our imagination not just as scientists, but I also I suspect as, as, as for artists, and, and and that's why I think it's it's another good reason to sort of keep up with some of the fantastic things that are happening in in the world, because I think if all three of us were locked in a in a room without any access to information about how the world behaved, that none of our work would be as Hopefully, well, I suspect as creative or interesting as it might be. Do you think when you bring scientists and artists and writers uh, together, they they actually inspire each other, give each other well, these, ideas? Well, these two gentlemen have inspired me in, for many years in many different ways. So there's no doubt about. It. I can say I'm inspired. They can they can speak for themselves. <laughs> well, for me, for example, uh, a film like Fitzcarraldo uh, moved a huge ship over a mountain. 
in the Amazon jungle actually started out uh, in Brittany at the coast of uh, northwestern coast of France where you have uh, dolmens and meniers, Neolithic, huge uh, slabs of stone erected, but there are thousands of them in parallel rows. And I was sitting there and I tried to figure out how would I do it as a, a Neolithic person without the modern machinery. And of course, I came up with a method which in, this, which in essence is how I moved the ship over the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it made me very angry because a, a pseudo-scientist uh, uh, had postulated that these stones were so heavy that only ancient astronauts from diver different planets could have done it. And I thought, this this is so so completely and utterly idiotic. It just itched me, and I wanted to find out, and it led to uh, a way how to move a ship over a mountain. Mm -hmm. And you as a filmmaker, by making a documentary or showing how this could do, uh, could actually be done without the need for aliens, uh, can influence a large public that might not listen to scientists speak about it. Because well, you're a filmmaker I'm through film. Yeah, I just jump in. I think that that's the point. I think the public is intimidated by science, but they love great books and great film and to the extent that those can in some sense lead people to 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 um to think about those questions in a realistic way that's great mm -hmm. uh cormac when, when you hang around scientists do they make you optimistic or pessimistic <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so, some of my friends would would probably tell you that making me pessimistic would be a difficult chore indeed. Uh, but I'm not, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not that. I'm, I'm pessimistic about a lot of things. But as as Lawrence has quoted me as saying, uh, it's no it's no reason to be miserable about it. Uh, <laughs> That's one of my so, one of my favorite quotes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. The other thing we talked about a few minutes ago was uh, how bad we are at prognostication. So the, the fact that I take a pretty dreary view of the futures uh, is cheering because I think, you know, the chances are that I'm wrong. <laughs> well, well, certainly reading the road, one hopes so <laughs> that, that you're wrong about that future scenario. And, no, and, I think uh, Cormac is not wrong because it's quite evident that uh, – uh, human beings as a species will vanish uh, in fairly quickly. When I say quickly, it may be in two, three thousand years, maybe thirty thousand years, maybe three hundred thousand, but not much more because we are much more vulnerable than than other species, despite a certain amount of intelligence. It doesn't make me nervous uh, that fairly soon we'll have a, a planet which doesn't contain uh, human beings. Well, you know, I, I, it's interesting you say that because I, I flip back and forth as a scientist between, you know, I, I think on there are days when I, I don't know whether I've ever imagined a future quite as bleak as the road, but but maybe, but 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 uh, you know, because I, th I think you know, humanity as a, as an ensemble hasn't demonstrated a lot of intelligence about behaving in in a way that globally impacts on the planet in a healthy way. But at the same time, I agree with 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 Werner but I'm not so sure we'll vanish because we destroyed ourselves we may vanish what may, we're, no, we for other reasons we, I'm yeah. not speaking of self-destruction which could happen of course but there, there are many events uh, thinkable out there which uh, would 
instantly wipe us out. Oh, absolutely. That that that's likely to happen. That will inevitably happen anyway. But I think there may be a, a rosier future. Let's, let me throw one thing in which I think is rosy. Well, let, let, some let, people, Lawrence, let me let you hold that because we have to go to a okay. break. And a rosy future would be a good way to start the next <laughs> yeah. to start the next segment. So stay with us. We're talking we're talking about the future with uh, Werner Werner Herzog, Lawrence Krauss, and uh, Cormac McCarthy. Our number one eight hundred nine eight nine eight two five five. Tweet us at SciFry at SCIFRI. You may never see these three together in a room again. So here's your opportunity to talk with them. We'll we'll get back. You can, as I say, tweet us uh, at at SciFry. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from NPR. You're listening to Science Friday. I am Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about science, art, and human origins with my guest, Werner Herzog, director of many films. His latest film is Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Corman McCarthy, novelist and playwright. His latest novel, The Road. It won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Lawrence Krauss, profess, foundation professor and director of the ASU Origins Project. Our number, 1-800-989-8255. And when and I rudely interrupted Lawrence, as I do many times, <laughs> even in real life, over yes. a beer. <laughs> um, Martini. Uh, he, he, was, he was telling us about his vision of a rosier future than the one in the Well, row. yeah, I'm not sure it's the rosy future that some people would think about. But, you know, I, I've, I've talked about the fact that you know, we, we imagine we are the pinnacle of evolution. But I, don't, I doubt that's the case. And, I, in fact, I think it's quite clear to me in the long run that I think art of computers will have one day be, if we're if – we, persist as a species to develop them will one day become self-aware and conscious and it'll be obvious to me that they're much much they'll probably as a, be much superior to us and, and biology will have to in some way adapt to them and and you know the movies always show the computers as being bad but i don't know why that would be the case if they're self-aware i doubt they'll be any worse than we are and uh my friend Frank Wilczek asks, well, he wants to know if they do physics the same way. So I think, you know, we may disappear as a species just because we become irrelevant as, as, as well as being destroyed. And, but I don't think that's a bad thing. That's, that's just that may be the future. And, and uh, I think, you know, I think where I really would agree in with what or it, it, with certainly Werner, what Werner said in some sense is that we shouldn't be or and, and with Cormac, we shouldn't be depressed if we disappear. We should be thrilled that we're here right now. I, I see no purpose in the universe from science. And that doesn't that doesn't depress me. That just means we should make the most of our brief moment in the sun. We have a question here from a listener who called in asking about uh, both of you, and he's wondering where some of your ideas come from, and he, uh, he gave us this little phone clip. Hello, this is Kieran in Galway. Uh, my question is to both Cormac McCarthy and Werner Herzog. Uh, both of you have created works of art in which the universe is depicted as harsh, unforgiving, and indifferent to human concerns. To what extent is such a vision shaped by scientific ideas? And does complexity science offer us a different view of our place in the universe? Well, there you go. Uh, uh, Cormac, what is complexity yeah. science? Well, we talked about that coming over. I don't think you can ask any 10 people in science what complexity is and get a consistent view. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to go into it. It's The Santa Fe Institute basically deals with complexity in different disciplines. And uh, there, there is a, a, a common thread to it, but uh, it's kind of hard to, to come up with something that would satisfy everybody. Um, as far as being, as far as painting the world as as grim, um, I don't know. It, if if you look at classical literature, uh, the 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 core of literature is the idea of tragedy, uh, 
and uh, that's you know you don't really learn much from the good things that happen to you <laughs> but uh, but tragedy is at the core of human experience and it's what we have to deal with that's what makes life difficult and that's what we want to know about it's what we want to know how to deal with it it's unavoidable there's nothing you can do to uh, uh, forestall it so how do you deal with it and mm-hmm. uh all classical all classical literature has to do with uh, things to happen that happen to people they would really rather hadn't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Werner, let's talk about your yeah. latest film a cave of forgotten well i'd Jews. like to answer the the oh, question sure. part of the question first because there was a, a, an interesting aspect uh, in it at the end our place in the universe uh, well it is here and uh, that's the place we have in nothing else Everything else is unfriendly. Uh, We cannot flee from our planet. I mean, go to any other planet in the solar system. It's just just not inviting. And the next planet from there, uh, the next star out there is only four and a half light years away, but with the fastest speed we can ever reach uh, so far, it would take 110,000 years just to go there hundreds and hundreds of generations they wouldn't even know where they were going there would be incest and madness and murder and whatever en route so it's not pleasant to to move and Lawrence I hope you agree we cannot dissolve into particles of light like in Star Trek and, and beam ourselves somewhere I wish we could this is our, an airport terminal I wish I could this, this <laughs> is our place this is our place and we better take care of it and sometimes of course uh, you you can be disgruntled uh, in a way. For example, I've worked in the jungle and uh, after real hardship, I I came to to the conclusion, yes, I love the jungle. However, against my better judgment... (laughs) <laughs> but, um, well, well you, your, your new film shows the triumph of the human experience it does, and yes, spirit, because, doesn't uh, it? Yes, because you, you, have to, you have to imagine that only 73, 74,000 years ago, a gigantic um, volcanic explosion took place in Sumatra, which almost wiped out uh, the entire human race. There was the so-called bottleneck still disputed among scientists, uh, but uh, the population, uh, the number of human beings shrank to under 10,000, maybe only 2,000, started to recover. uh, And then, of course, there was the Ice Age, you have to imagine, 35,000 years ago. So almost all of Europe was covered by ice, the uh, Alp Mountains under 3,000 meters, which means 9,000 feet of ice, Further north ice, it bound so much water that you could walk as a hunter from Paris to London uh, on uh, dry uh, because the level of the ocean was 100 meters lower. So you could walk across the British islands. Uh, and um, a completely, utterly different world. And yet uh, uh, this world, which was filled with woolly rhinos, mammoths, uh, lions in southern France, all of a sudden shows us this is where we came from, where our spirit, our nature, modern human soul uh, began. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I want to jump in because there's an interest. We're going to have a panel before Werner's film with, with Curtis Marion here at ASU, who's actually one of the people who studied that bo- bottleneck and is leading a program to try and understand the origin of modern humans and, and what does it mean to be modern. And we, we actually had a meeting about that, and it's not even clear... It doesn't, it's not even clear what, make mo- what makes modern humans unique. And, and, trying to s- and getting this direct window on, uh, on humans 30,000 years ago is, yeah. is just fascinating. I saw the movie, and it, it, I had no idea of the level of, the, of, of cultural development mm-hmm. at that time. It's just amazing. Well, Neanderthals were not, were not cultured. They were not modern. And they apparently perished. It's pretty much established that we have a small percentage of our genes, maybe 3% still disputed, might be Neanderthal. Maybe the Neanderthal men went out to uh, to snatch away uh, Homo sapiens women mm-hmm. and for, have fornication, <laughs> and we got some genes, and they were hunted down <laughs> by <laughs> superior superior oh, hunters. And I wonder. I've often wondered, though. Do you think it's a, the fact if it's true that? And I still don't know if we know whether Neanderthals had culture because I think there's some burial we, sites where Neanderthals do have some have some flowers in a, in a burial site. But if well, they it do, could do think, have been uh, if pollen find. He could have been any anything. Maybe, it could have yeah. been. But the question but, is, yeah. do you, I wonder whether I've often wondered whether it's it was positive for us that we seem to have culture or negative. Would we have been, you know, we seem to have survived, but is that an accident or, or no? Not? I, I we'll like know, to I be in a, in an existence of culture and technology. By the way, I'm not against technology, and it's mind-boggling how 35,000 years ago uh, ivory. A flute was made. It was actually carved out of the tusk of a mammoth, uh, as thin as a pencil, then spliced in half with a flintstone, then hollowed out and uh, glued back together. And of course, you have the finger holes, and the finger holes are so precisely uh, placed that you have pentatonic tonality as today. Wow. Gorbik, did you want to jump in there and say something? Um, well, the interesting thing about the caves to me is is the longevity of this school of art. The oldest, and the, the oldest we know of, by, by no means are we to therefore say that the Chauvet caves are the oldest there are. They're just the oldest we've seen. But that's mm-hmm. going back 32,000 years. And then you come all the way up through the Mag- Magdalenian period to... Uh, 11,000 years ago. This is this is 20,000 years and the paintings are it's they're the same. The 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 perspectives that they use, uh the the uh, style that they use, the the things that they use uh, to show for instance that uh, the leg of an animal is is not on the in the fore view but in the rear view is is they disconnect it from the body. All all these uh, all these things persevered and if you look at the if you look at the cave paintings at Chauvet, they're really just the same. They're the same, the same school of thought, the same school of art, the same type of work. Uh, that's that's astonishing that you could have a school of art unchanged for twenty thousand years. Uh, I've I've never heard anybody's view about that. I would be interested to know what uh, the people who have studied this what they think about that. Obviously, there is a culture here. Uh, artifacts uh, come from cultures. You have to have the culture first. And uh, obviously there is a, a very strong and very rich culture that endured for thousands and thousands of years. 
and uh, nobody seems to know anything about it. I think that's astonishing. You, then you see the, the, you, when you get to uh, the earliest so-called cities, communities like Satal Hayuk, uh, the first thing you see are paintings of bulls on the walls. Uh, they're not as good. We're already in a state of decline. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but that that's amazing. That's just amazing. Mm-hmm. One it, of the things that amazed me, and I don't know if Werner wants to comment on it, that I that surprised me picking up on that was in this particular cave. There's evidence that the the art was added to over a five thousand year period, right? And that's just amazing to me. Think back five thousand years from now, what has persisted over yeah. that amount of time? Well, it's it's even more stunning because uh, through radiocarbon dating, we can be fairly precise in dating, for example, a charcoal painting. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have a, a case where a painter uh, depicted a reindeer. Somebody completed the picture, and it's it's established five thousand years later. Just, this is just completely <laughs> mind-boggling. The, the, the absence of of notion of time. Uh, the other thing um, that people don't don't seem to talk about is, you know, you you didn't just suddenly go into a cave and start painting uh, bulls, you had to learn how to do it somewhere. So so obviously there was a school of painting, and uh, this was probably done in the open air, and people were trained to be painters. Uh, And by the time they were allowed to go into the caves and actually make a painting on a wall in a cave, guess what? They were pretty good painters. Uh, No one's found Mm -hmm. any traces of of inept work. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And... uh, I, I have been puzzled by one thing. There is in Altamira, in uh, northern Spain, in the Pyrenees, there are wonderful bison, and there is one crouching bison, um, which is very significant. And a tablet, a clay tablet, was found with basically, I, I mean, as, as small as let's say uh, five inches across in diameter. And it has exactly the same figuration, configuration of legs and crouching. So my question to the scientists was, could it be that there was some sort of a, of a basic pattern and a traveling artist would move from place to place? Because in other caves, this type of bison crouching was found as well. Mm. Of course, it's uh, we we don't have an answer. You have to it's travel a long way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about uh, science and the arts and culture this hour on Science Friday from NPR. Talking uh, with Werner Herzog, Cormac, Cormac McCarthy, and Lawrence Krauss. Our number one eight hundred nine eight nine eight two five five. It's interesting in these caves of Chauvet. It was a fa- it's a fascinating documentary, Werner. It's just terrific. I, I didn't get to see it in three D, but I understand there's a three D version of it. Um, well, it's imperative to see it yeah, in three D. It gonna, was shot in three D and should be seen in three yeah. D if possible. Um, uh, but but you talk about the cave drawing technique in there, and one of the fascinating Fascinating illustrations in the cave is the attempt by the artist to show the animals moving in movement. Yes. Uh, uh, there's a galloping bison depicted with eight legs. Then there's a rhino, a woolly rhino, and you see eight phases of movement forward, almost like a proto-animation uh, film. In, in a way, it's kind of really stunning to, to see that. Another thing that is uh, that is unusual is is how the uh, species depicted change over time. The Chauvet caves are unusual in that they do show predators, particularly lions. By the time you get to Lascaux and caves where the paintings were done 15,000 years ago, 
there are almost no predators. There's uh, there's there are a couple of bears. I think there's a wolf somewhere. Horses, uh, but horses, anything, yes, horses yeah. constitute about thirty percent of the depictions. Yeah. Uh, but um, the according to according to the uh, the middens, the the principal food item was reindeer, and they are almost uh, non-existent as paintings. So I don't. I have no idea what any of that means, but I'm happy, <laughs> happy to know no one else does well, either. You, you, well, you know that's right. I mean, I think this is a sense I got from Werner Film and what you just mentioned is that these are fascinating questions. We there's questions yeah. we may know never know the answer to, but you know it just it fuels our speculation to mm-hmm. wonder what were their forgotten dreams yeah. as 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 Werner's titled this film. Yeah, when you speak about forgotten dreams, you, there's one stunning piece on a, a rock pendant. The only uh, partial human depiction, the lower part of a female body naked, the pubic area visible, and a bison somehow embracing the female. And uh, 32,000 years later, you have Picasso drawing uh, paintings um, and doing prints of the minotaur and the female. You know what Picasso said when he came up? out of Lascaux after the war. Yes. He said, we've learned nothing. Exactly. I remember <laughs> well, that. Yes. I, d- I was <laughs> taken, when I, looked at, when I looked at the images in your film, at how modern they were in that sense and how they reminded me of Picasso. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I actually began one of my books with, a, with, a, with another piece of art in a cave, in a German cave, that, that figurine. That's, yes. Uh, uh, that's even older, I think. And, the Venus and, of yeah, Holefels well, well, the Venus of Willendorf. And, yeah, yeah and with, with, with the head of a lion and the, and the body of a man, that's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, no, that's, that's a different, a different that's one. Different. It's not a it's actually a, a, a male, apparently a male, a That's lion right. head in the human and, body. And I wondered what, 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 why did they produce that? And it seemed to me that at some point, it's a, it's a, one of the possibilities is that it's a person saying, well, look, there are lions and there are people here, so maybe somewhere else, maybe somewhere over the rainbow, somewhere, there's a place where there are lion people. And to me, that's the kind of speculation that fuels science, which All is right. to ask what are the possibilities. And we're, well, some we're, of the paintings well, overlap between animals and mm-hmm. other, yeah. other figures. Right, well, I have to They'll jump. use one I, eye for two Gentlemen, animals. I have to jump in here because we have to <laughs> To take a break, but we'll get get back to this uh, talking with Werner Herzog, and especially about his latest film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. That's what the uh, images we're talking about there. Also with us is Cormac McCarthy and Lawrence Krauss. Our number one eight hundred nine eight nine eight two five five, and uh, you can tweet us at SciFry at S C I F R I. We'll be back with the discussion after this break. Don't go away. You're listening to Science Friday. I am Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about science, art, and culture and the origins of it with my guest, Cormac McCarthy, novelist and playwright. His latest book is The Road. He's won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, a physicist and foundation professor and director of the Arizona State University Origins Project. And also Werner Herzog, who is a film director, producer, and screenwriter. And we've been focusing in on his uh, latest film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which uh, premieres this month. And and, uh, a synopsis of it, Werner, how would you, for people who are just tuning in, what would you say the film is? Well, it is um, uh, looking into a deep abyss of time with a camera. Going into the cave, probably nobody will ever be allowed again because they, I think they will shut it down, like Lascaux, the most famous so far, because too many human beings in there left a mold. Uh, the exhalation, the breath of humans left a mold on the walls that cannot be controlled easily. So it's just a um, uh, penetration into an abyss. Uh, you can visit them with... 
You could visit them with naval rebreathers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where is yeah. this? Where are they located? The caves. Uh, it's one cave with uh, two branches. It is in the south of France, not mm-hmm. very far from the Rhone River in the gorge of the Ardèche River. You have to check it out on a on a map, but it's yeah. southern France. And, and they believe, uh, from watching your film, that they believe there may be more of these caves. That are well, we can speculate. Maybe, hopefully, would be great. Mm-hmm. But I want, we don't know. I, w- I want to play a little clip from your film. Uh, this this clip is describes the reaction of one of the scientists uh, talking about his experience in this magnificent cave. The first time I entered to to show the cave, I had a chance to to get in during five days and. It was so powerful that every night I was dreaming of lions. And every day was the same uh, shock for me. It was an emotional shock. I mean, I'm a scientist, but a human too. And after five days, I decided not to go back in the cave because I needed time just to relax and take time to... To absorb it. To absorb it, yeah. Wow. Werner, who was that scientist? Well, a young, younger generation archaeologist uh, who was very fascinating because he uh, started his career as a circus man. And I immediately asked him a lion tamer. No, he was a juggler <laughs> in a unicycle. <laughs> man, <such> yes. <laughs> but uh, very, very fascinating people there. And what what is so fascinating that it looks as if uh, an entire world was articulated and and almost invented because uh, uh, the the animals, they look realistic and yet they look like an invention, something, uh, a a figment of our own fantasies and the same thing. And I would like to shift a little bit to, to Cormac's work because... Uh, he invents entire landscapes. He invents horses in a way we have never seen, uh, heard them being described by dint of declaration. Uh, Cormac McCarthy creates a whole landscape that has been unknown to all of us, even though it seems to exist, like, let's say, um, Faulkner and others uh, invented and described the Deep South or um, someone like... um, um, Joseph Conrad describes uh, the Congo in the jungle and the mysteries. And so all of a sudden we have literature here which is uh, not unprecedented because we have something of the caliber of your of your writing. We see it, for example, in the last two pages of um, Moby Dick, Melville. We see it in the best of... Uh, uh, Faulkner, we see it in the best uh, of uh, my great favorite writer of the 20th century uh, who, who wrote, uh, for example, Typhoon, the nigger of Narcissus. Conrad. Of course, Joseph Conrad, whose language originally wasn't even English. Such a great stylist. And for decades, we have not seen literature in prose and style that you are writing. Period. Well, you're very complimentary. I don't know. I, I, w- I was thinking this morning about, I have to reread Faulkner's story, Spotted Horses, because it occurs to me that, that what is so engaging about that tale is just the sheer exuberance and exaggeration of it. 
mean, these <laughs> these mad wild horses uh, that have gotten loose from the barn and are running across the the countryside. And one crosses a bridge and it meets a wagon coming the other way. And I think he describes it as as scrambling along the single tree like a squirrel. Well, now that's <laughs> that's not really quite possible, but it's just very fetching. Mm-hmm. Um, Spotted horses, these were horses from the southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how far back spotted horses go. I, I know that the uh, one of the famous depictions in the caves is at Peshmerl. There are two spotted horses, and uh, mm-hmm. and some of the spots are gray and some are red, but they're just, they're just extraordinary. And uh, the strange thing about them is you think about the hands the hands on experience of making these paintings those those dots the spots on the horses were made with fingertips you yeah. you can yeah. s- you can see the uh, the whorls of the fingers in the paint um i d- i don't know what that's about that's it's just very interesting well you know as you try and speculate on this uh, the, uh, the imaginary world that you create the the Real world that you've documented, yeah, but it is related to a real world. It, but, it, but there's a there's a force of declaration. But but I could re- dint of declaration. All of a sudden, it comes it comes into existence as a piece of language. But but the, yes. but there's a similarity, and I, I really related to what that scientist was saying. In some sense, it, it, you know, he was he, when when one. What you don't realize is sometimes when you try and confront the real world. As a scientist, it's terrifying because it forces you to it, to throw away a lot of things you believe. And, and sometimes you have to go away from it. And, and I think that's what I mean. I think the convergence of science and art in, in the sense that, it for, that, that what that scientist was saying, it was confronted with the reality of those caves. It, forced, it, 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 it was difficult for him to deal with. And, I, and even as a theoretical physicist, sometimes just at lone at night, confronted with the possibility that the real universe might actually – Correspond to something you're thinking about is terrifying, and 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 well, and I think of course it is because it's not not friendly. Just be imagined to be being sucked into a black hole, or even landing on the sun, which looks so benign and beautiful, and there's hundreds of thousands of atomic explosions yeah, <laughs> boiling right. every and, second. And, and in some ways, we have yeah. to realize that. Yeah, well, once again, it, it we have to confront our own, in some sense, an unfriendly universe potentially, but also our own. Insignificance in a cosmic sense, and and what what significance we make of ourselves uh, is to me it's part of it is our ability to this amazing gift we have to appreciate the universe and imagine it not just as it is, but as uh, but as it might be in order to understand ourselves better. That's why yes, I find this connection. But, but Cormac <clears throat> gives a universe in the universe that he describes in this in this case the border area between Texas and in Mexico. And um, <clears throat> I'd like just to read one one passage because from all the pretty horses, I can't help it Good because idea. it's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and the, the leading character, um, uh, John Grady, uh, to, at the end uh, <clears throat> witnesses the funeral of his uh, um, of an old Mexican lady who uh, raised the family. He stood hat in hand over the unmarked earth. 
This woman who had worked for his family 50 years, she had cared for his mother as a baby and she had worked for his family long before his mother was born and she had known and cared for the wild Grady boys who were his mother's uncles and who had all died so long ago and he stood holding his hat and he called her his abuela and he said goodbye to her in Spanish and then turned and put his hat and turned his wet face to the wind, and for a moment he held out his hands as if to steady himself, or as if to bless the ground where, or there, or perhaps as if to slow the world that was rushing away and seemed to care nothing for the old and the young, or rich or poor, or dark or pale, or he or she, nothing for their struggles. Nothing for their names, nothing for the living or the dead. In four days' riding, he crossed the Pecos at Iran, Texas, and rode up to the river breaks, where the pump jacks in the Yates Field ranged against the skyline, rose and dipped like mechanical birds, like great primitive birds welded up out of iron by hearsay by hearsay, listen to that, by hearsay in a land perhaps where such birds once had been. It's just totally amazing. And then shortly uh, later, the desert he rode was red and red, the dust he raised, the small dust that powered the legs of the horse he rode, the horse he led. In the evening, the wind came up and reddened all the sky before him. There were few cattle in that country because it was barren country indeed, yet he came at evening upon a solitary bull rolling in the dust against the blood-red sunset like an animal in sacrificial torment. Well, I have to say... So, well, I, I, have I, to say I, I, I think we've, yeah. said, we've, we've said a landmark it's here. Just, Werner Herzog yes. reading Corman McCarthy. I, I, I just want to say, if that, if that was the purpose of my event, was it to bring Werner to read Cormac, it's, it's, six, it's it, amazing. It, it, cannot get <laughs> any, it cannot get any better. And for decades, we have not had this language in American literature. Well, well thank you, Werner. You're very kind. I think we should pick on Lawrence. Now, I've just finished his book. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me... And I have to, yeah, let's I have to say, <laughs> it's it's just very very good. It's uh, what you what you it's it's supposedly a biography of Richard Feynman, but it's not that at all. It's a story of Feynman's science, particularly QED. It, it picks up at the beginning in high school and takes you through not not so much Feynman as as what he did, and it's just very very well done. Cor- Cormac, well, have have you ever? I'm being there at the Santa Fe Institute. Do you ever, in your great facility with the English language, find yourself turning some of those research papers into better ones before they're published? Oh, I do. I fight with them all the time. I say <laughs> you have to get you have to get rid of these exclamation points and these semicolons. Uh, I, I won't <laughs> speak to you until you do. I have to say that Cormac yeah. wrote, phoned me. We spoke on the phone about my book, and he said. I, I, I've got it, and, I, and I'm, I, there's some suggestions I want to make for the next edition, but you have to get rid of all your exclamation yeah. marks. But uh, <laughs> let me Cormac, just, let me just jump in. Either <laughs> side, we go. We should go straight at Lawrence's jugular. Oh, because, great! <laughs> because only two days ago, a day ago, there was uh, reports of a mysterious finding, possibly even a, a, a new form of force in the universe. And and we just want to to know what what do you think about it? Well, well, Can well, you Lawrence, describe it, Lawrence? Let me let me let me just jump in here and remind everybody that uh, this is Science Friday from NPR. 
I'm Ira Plato with uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and Werner Herzog. Uh, Lawrence, do you want to fill us in on that? Well, it's, it's a fascinating. It's a. It's a fascinating, a tantalizing bump uh, seen at the Fermi National Accelerator Lab. A yeah. statistical bump, and um, and the, I suspect, and if it's true, it means much of what we think about the fundamental forces of nature is wrong, which is pro- it's probably not true. And we were just talking about that before. It's exciting, uh, but we have to realize that we have to wait and see. And most of our ideas are wrong. And so the, the most exciting thing would be if, if this bump that shouldn't be there is there because it means most of our ideas are wrong. And, and if you're a theoretical physicist, that's exactly what you want to be the case because it means there's a lot more out there to discover. Well, I hope they're wrong. I hope what? they're wrong because I feel comfortable with the explanation of forces. What bump? Well, you know, so give us an idea. Uh, Lawrence, what do you mean by a bump that's there? Well, well what, what, what the um, Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory does in, in the Tevatron, the, which was until the Large Hadron Collider the most energetic accelerator in the world, is bangs together protons and antiprotons together, smashes them together and sees what comes out, measuring the energy of the particles and the different uh, and their charges. And if a particle is created that lives for a little while and then decays, what you'll see is a lot of particles coming out, but all with the energy of, uh, uh, associated with the mass of the particle that decays. So if you're looking to discover new particles, you look at the energy of the particles coming out, and you see if they all happen to lie in a very small region. That means there's probably some intermediate particle that was created that lives for a while and then decays. And that's statistically what they've seen at a tantalizing level. The Large Hadron Collider, of course, will explore it, and, um, and it, doesn't, and, um, it's it doesn't fit theory anywhere? It doesn't fit theory anywhere. And, in fact, the interesting thing is that Werner said he, he, want, he hopes it's wrong because I kind of feel, feel like him in the jungle because it, I, it, I want it, it to be wrong even though I know it's probably not good for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what they're looking for principally at the Large Hadron Collider, I think, is the, uh, the Higgs boson. And if they don't find that, there's going to have to be a lot of revision done because that the so-called Higgs mechanism is what's responsible for supplying the masses to the particles in the standard model. And if they don't find some way to get these masses into the <laughs> into the particles, they're going to have to do a lot of rewriting and, of, and, uh, of yeah, physics for the last 40 years. Absolutely. And and unfortunately, you know, it saddens me because let's say they don't we don't find it, the Large Hadron Collider. That in some sense would be the most interesting finding. It would be have, interesting uh, indeed. But, but, but the trouble is yeah. to get the government to fund another accelerator if we say we did this and we found nothing. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> it might be hard. Yeah. It might be a hard sell. For, it might but it's, it's a great mystery and, and there's... Uh, and, and with certain things that have been established so far, uh, it's easy to settle in. And, and we hope uh, they are wrong and, and this statistical little hiccup uh, it doesn't mean too much. Uh, or, for example, uh, in, in pure mathematics, Riemann's hypothesis about distribution of uh, prime numbers. Sure. Uh, let's hope he's, he's right because otherwise... Uh, every single uh, theorem in mathematics would collapse. Gentlemen, yeah, we've run out of time. Can we invite you back next time, same place? <laughs> I'd same love station? it. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll talk. It, it will talk. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> Werner Herzog is a film director, producer, and screenwriter. He has directed over 50 films, you know, Grizzly Man and Encounters at the End of the World. His latest film is Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It's in 3D. It opens April 29th nationwide. If you want to see these wonderful cave drawings and, and the history and, and the challenges and the dreams, it's a terrific film. 
Uh, Cormac McCarthy, what can I say about him? He's a novelist and a playwright. His books include The Road, No Country for Old Men, All the Pretty Horses. And McCarthy is also the recipient of the 2000 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And now it sounds like he knows more about science than we thought he did. He's, he's letting us know about that. Lawrence Krauss is a physicist, foundation professor, and director of the ASU Origins Project. His latest book is Quantum Man, Richard Feynman's Life in Science. He's also uh, head of the Science and Culture Festival that's taking place all weekend at Arizona State University. You can drop in if there are any tickets left, and uh, that's in, in Tempe. Thank you all for taking time to be with us today. We'll meet you back here a year from, a year from now. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Ira. Thanks, Thanks Thank Ira. You. You're welcome.